Well, <clears throat> if you're joining us here for the first time, uh, just to kind of let you know, we are currently going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are right now, we're in uh, chapter 4, uh, towards the end of this chapter. Um, and we're looking at some different topics I think Paul is addressing to the church. And one of the reasons we started this is because what I see in 1 Corinthians and what's going on in this church that Paul is writing to in Corinth uh, a lot of the issues are very, very uh, relatable to the church today. Uh, a lot of the struggles that they had, the issues that they had, the sins that they were going through were very similar to, I think, what we're doing today. Um, you know, if I ha I've had the privilege of doing a lot of weddings and a lot of marriages, and uh, also along with that, a lot of premarital counseling. And uh, one of the things, if, you, if you've never done premarital counseling with me, one of the, the things that we touch on are uh, at least four things we touch on are four areas of a married life that oftentimes are common areas of conflict for married folks, um, that, things that we fight about. And those four areas are things like money, uh, sex, in-laws, and, and, and children, and children. A lot of our frustrations and problems with marriage, I think, oftentimes relate to one of these, if not, if not all of these, at one point in our lives and, and one point in our marriages. And what I find is that the reason they are so often sources of friction is that they are it's not it's not because money or or sex or or in-laws or children are are bad or even inherently difficult in themselves these things are all legitimate and good uh, and in fact these things are meant to be blessings in our lives uh, sources of joy in our lives but the reason i think that they become sources of friction or conflict is oftentimes because of certain expectations, certain expectations that we have of these things, certain expectations that, that we carry uh, for our partners with regards to these things. Sometimes we, we expect too much. Sometimes other times we maybe we expect too little. Um, and there are other times we, we can be very unrealistic, unrealistic about maybe our spouse's needs, uh, unrealistic about our own abilities, um, when conflict arises, we, we tend to make all kinds of assumptions, uh, expectations we have that, that we never really talk about openly nor properly communicate with our, our partners and our loved ones or even try and negotiate. And so it's not our money or it's not in-laws or it's not sex or children that are the problem. Uh, it's our faulty expectations oftentimes. It can be our own expectations that make things like money, sex, in-laws, children, points of tension and conflict and not sources of blessing and joy as they were meant to be, right? And so when you have faulty expectations, it really it could take the joy out of almost anything. You know, I think I've shared before uh, earlier on in, in, in our marriage when my wife was trying to cook, you know, there was that one time where she said she was going to cook me some chicken parm, right? And I love Italian food, but I was so hungry one Sunday and I came and I was expecting, in my mind, what chicken parm tasted like, what, what I envisioned it would taste like. And I was so hungry, I was expecting to be satisfied with that meal. And of course, everyone cooks food differently, and it wasn't what I expected. But because of my expectations, I was so frustrated. I was so let down because it didn't meet what I thought it was, should have met. You know, it, we experience this all the time. For example, you know, you, you, you look up a movie that you want to see, and you read the reviews, and it's got rave reviews, and everybody's talking about it. So you've got 
these expectations, right? That it's gonna be a great movie, but how many times have you been to see a movie where you heard so many great things, where you had these great expectations, but you were let down, that it didn't meet your expectations? Vice versa, maybe you went to see something that you didn't hear anything about. You had no expectations, but then you were pleasantly surprised how much you enjoyed it, right? Our expectations make a lot of difference. And if we're not careful, faulty expectations can even fracture our relationships. And that includes our relationship with God. And so in our passage today, um, there are three things that I want to share, like I try and do so that you can kind of follow along in, in our outline here. Three things with regards to these expectations about the Christian life. The Corinthians, first point, the Corinthians had expectations of what they thought the Christian life should be. The second point is, Paul has expectations of what the Christian life should be. And then the third point we'll look at is this, how to live with realistic uh, expectations in the Christian life. So the Corinthians had uh, uh, certain expectations, Paul had certain expectations, and then how do we live with realistic expectations of the Christian life, okay? So let's look at this. The Christians here in this church, just put it straightforward, uh, they had wrong expectations about what it meant to live the Christian life. When you read verses 8 to 13, as Pastor James had just read, I don't know what you think about uh, sarcasm, right? I, I can be a pretty sarcastic person, but if you've ever seen, if you ever want to see sarcasm in the Bible, here it is in this passage, in these verses from none other than the Apostle Paul himself. You know what sarcasm is, right? Sarcasm is when you say something, but you really mean the opposite. You know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you see a waiter, waiter or waitress, uh, you know, drop all the dishes and, and, and you say, hey, good job, right? Good job. You, you don't really mean that's a good job. It's sarcasm, right? Or when something kind of bad happens to you at work and, you know, some, some deadline that you were just given at the last minute and then you say, oh, wonderful, that's perfect. That's sarcasm, right? You don't really mean it's wonderful, but it's the very opposite. And so what Paul's doing here is I think he's being sarcastic. He's using a sarcastic tone and he's reflecting on what the Christians in Corinth are thinking about their life and about the Christian life. And in verse eight, he says this, he says, already you've got all you want. You've become rich. You've become kings. That's what he says. It, it's, it's sarcastic. In verse 10, he says, you're wise in Christ. You're strong. You're held in honor. That's sarcasm. That's what he's saying. But this is what they thought of themselves. This is how the Corinthians saw themselves. They were basically saying this. They said, you know what? Here's this creator God, the God of the universe. And, and we believe that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to make us his own, to bless us. And now he watches over us. And he gives us everything that we need. Right? That's, that's all fine and good for, for, at that point. But the Corinthians made this conclusion. They, they had this expectation even that since we worship and follow this God right now, right now we have the fullest joys. We have the highest blessings. We have all that we will ever need. We've got everything. That's what they were saying. Now, that might sound okay to some of you, okay? But, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. They looked at all the wonderful things of the gospel uh, that they have when they believed in Jesus Christ, and they concluded this, that if you're a Christian today, you ought to expect to lead your happiest life right now. That your fullest joys ought to be right here. 
that your highest blessings uh, ought to be right now and right here, that the sweetest experience of God's grace should be right now and right here. They were basically saying this. They were believing this. They were expecting this, that if you really are living a faithful Christian life today, if you're really spiritual, if you really have faith, well, then this is what we expect to see in your life. Victory over sin, victory over suffering, victory over sorrow, that if you're following God, a God who gives, a God who is in control of everything, that suffering, pain, and, and sorrow, that shouldn't be a big problem in your life. You should have your best life now. That is the normal Christian life if you're being a faithful Christian. This is what they were believing, and this is what Paul is addressing. This is, this is what they expected from the Christian life. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but it's amazing to me how something that a church struggled with back then is still something that the church struggles with today. Because this thinking, this expectation of the Christian life is rampant in the church today. We call this expectation, we call this thinking the health and wealth gospel, which basically says that if you're really a Christian and you're doing and you're living as a real Christian should, uh, should as a spiritual person should, then you should be living a life of abundance right here, right now in this world. And not just in some metaphorical, spiritual, by faith kind of abundance, but a real, material, physical here and now in this world kind of blessing. And if you're not experiencing this as a Christian, then something must be wrong with your Christian life, with your relationship with God. Something must be wrong with your faith. And so it's no wonder that this church had a pride problem. They, it's no wonder that they looked down on other churches or other Christians that didn't quite measure up to their standard of living, whose sufferings and weaknesses and sorrows and pains and shortcomings obviously identified them as less than spiritual, second-rate Christians. That's why they were prideful. But this is what they expected. They had certain expectations if they followed Jesus in this world. Okay, That was the Corinthians' expectations of the Christian life. That's the first point. But at the same time, here's the second point. What you see here is Paul's expectations. Okay, at The same passage, Paul gives his experience of the Christian life. And there's irony here. There's irony in verses 9 to verse 10. Uh, look at what he says. He says, uh, God has exhibited us as apostles as least of all men, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world. We're fools, he says. We're weak, he says in verse 10. Uh, he says, we're in disrepute. That's what he says. Do you see what he's saying? Here was the Corinthian church claiming that the truly spiritual Christians should be living the good life right now. But then here's probably one of the most Christian people in the world, right? The mighty apostle Paul himself, who says, I'm like a man sentenced to death here. He says, I'm like a public spectacle. You know, the word spectacle, it, he's referring to back in the day when, when, for example, the Roman Empire would take slaves and they would throw them into arena and they would make them fight animals or beasts or fight themselves and for the entertainment of the crowd they were a spectacle to the roman empire as they watched them kill themselves he's saying that's that's me right he's like a man sentenced to death he says in this world I, i'm counted a fool I, I look weak i've got no honor 
This is what he says. In fact, when you read verse 11, this is what he says. He says, in this present world, we hunger and we thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. We're reviled, we're persecuted, we're slandered. And, and listen to verse 13. He's pretty harsh on himself. He says, we're like the scum of the world. We're the refuse of all things. We're trash. That's what he says in the eyes of the world. And then Paul's basically saying this. This is my normal Christian life. You see what's going on here? <clears throat> on the one hand, you've got these Christians in the Corinth, and they say, hey, we're, we're rich. We don't need anything. We've got everything. We've got blessing. This is what happens when you follow God. And then here's Paul saying, this is me. This is me following God. I, I'm poor. I'm hungry. I'm, I'm having a hard time. There's hardship. I'm persecuted. I'm like scum of the earth. That's how people treat me, right? Completely different approaches to the Christian life, completely different things. And Paul's expectation then of the Christian life is very, op very opposite of what the Corinthians thought. Now, let's be clear. What the Corinthians or what the or Christians in Corinth were thinking in and of itself is not necessarily all wrong. There's truth there, that in Christ, we are rich, that in Christ, by faith, we are like kings. That in Christ, by faith, we are called to be wise and strong and honorable. But what's the problem? The problem for Paul with this church is this. The issue is in the timing. The timing. In the expectation of that timing. The key word in our passage, passage that sums up the view of the Christians in Corinth, uh, that all of life should be full of blessing, is the word already. Already is repeated twice in verse 8. It's the issue of timing. Already, he says, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. Paul's being sarcastic, but the issue for him isn't the timing. Paul says, I live in the present hour. I live right now in the reality of this world. A reality that recognizes that, yes, there is glory that is promised. There is glory, but not yet. Not fully. Not completely. Paul is saying he lives in a world where though there are real joys to be had, it's still not perfect. It's still not as it should be. Not yet. And so the Corinthians was like, already, already, we've got everything we need. Already it's the fullest thing. We have everything that Christians should have right now. And Paul is saying, no, not yet. Not yet. Total, complete, uh, completely opposite expectations of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes you think about a Christian or some people look at Christians and they think, oh, you know, Christians, they have their heads in the clouds. They think everything is rose-colored glasses and so on and so forth. But what you see here is not that from the Apostle Paul. He doesn't have his head in the clouds. Paul was a realist in many ways. He knew the reality of the world that he lived in, what he calls this present hour. And let me just put it... Um, Somewhat colloquially, he says this. Basically, he's saying this, that sometimes, many times, that the world we live in, it does suck, okay? That life can stink. And I think here, Paul would be the first to admit that. He would be the first to admit that. Maybe not with those words. Uh, he'd probably use words like, well, the world is sinful, it's, it's broken, and so on and so forth. But he knows this about the world that he lives in. He's a realist. And you wonder then how someone like Paul, 
doesn't just become a cynical person or a pessimistic kind of person like most of us become here in the East Coast. He's not cynical, right? He's not being pessimistic, but he's realistic. Paul never said that the world is perfect. Paul never said that your life will be really good if you become a Christian. He never said that. But neither would he just conclude that, well, this world only sucks, okay? You see, the difference for Paul and the Corinthians is in the expectations of what it means to follow Jesus in this world right now. And for Paul, to follow Jesus in this present hour of brokenness and sinfulness, to follow Jesus in this present hour of suckiness, you could say, means that he experiences things like hunger, thirst, that he's reviled, that he's persecuted, verse 11. It means this. Paul expects hardship. He expects trials. He expects bad things to happen in a world that is far from perfect. And just because you're a Christian today doesn't guarantee a better life. In fact, sometimes, even for Paul, it seems worse. It feels worse. Paul lives, he says, in this present hour, this present reality of brokenness, of sinfulness, of suckiness. And yet he's not overcome by cynicism. He's not overcome by pessimism. He's not overwhelmed by depression. Why? Because he still follows this person, Jesus Christ. He still follows a Jesus who himself came and lived in this world to do good but ends up getting the bad, getting crucified. He follows a Jesus who suffered first all the way to a cross, but then resurrected to life, to hope and glory after. Paul had realistic expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus, but never once did he lose hope. Why? Because he believed what Jesus said, when Jesus says in John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, he says, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. <clears throat> Do you see this? Trouble, yes, in this world. In fact, expect it, but take heart. Be encouraged. The promise of hope and glory. How do I know this? Because Jesus guaranteed it for us when he overcame the world, when he beat sin and death and brokenness, and he rose from the dead on the third day. You know, <clears throat> many of us, uh, I don't know if you ever watched those movies or shows where there's always the underdog in the show, like a sports movie, and, and there's always this underdog, and, and people don't expect anything from the underdog, right? And towards the end of the movie, you see how this underdog, just through sheer perseverance, sheer faithfulness, sheer work, that he rises or she rises above the, the odds and experiences victory and experiences being not the underdog, but the top dog. And no one expects this. And that's an inspirational story to many of us. We, we like underdog stories, right? But the fact of the matter is, Nobody likes being an underdog, right? Everybody wants to be the top dog, right? But as a Christian in this world, Paul expected to be the underdog. He expects to be the underdog, but he believes that one day he'll be the top dog. Guaranteed. Why? Because it's the greatest underdog story that we know. He believes and follows a Jesus who looked weak, 
who no one expected anything from, who died like a thief on a cross, but then he came out on top, resurrected for our sakes, guaranteeing that all those along with this Jesus will come out on top with him one day. One day. That's what Paul's expectations were as he lived in this world. Completely different from what the Corinthians were expecting. And so Paul, I think, is basically telling this church and us, get your expectations right about what it means to live the Christian life. Get your expectations right. For the Corinthian Christians, their expectations of the Christian life was this. Glory now. Victory now. Suffering, pain, poverty, sickness, frustration, loss, maybe later, hopefully never, right? But if you're looking for daily triumph, if you're expecting to ride the heights of victory, rise above your sin and your suffering every single day, I want you to know this. For Jesus, it was the opposite. For Jesus, and therefore for Paul, and for us, in this world, it was suffering first, pain first, frustration, inconvenience, loss first. It was death first, and then glory, and then victory, right? For those of us who follow Jesus, it was the cross first, and then the resurrection. I want you to expect that, Paul says. As followers of Christ, I want you to expect this, that the crown only comes after the cross, the crown only comes after the cross. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, I know many of you listening to this, so you're probably saying to yourself, well, you know, I don't, I don't have that problem with the Corinthian church. I don't expect to, to win all the time. I don't expect to live a life free of trouble. I, I just want moments. I just once in a while, you know, I just want a bone, right? I just want something good in my life just to happen, right? And that's what we think. And um, who does this, right, to expect to live a life free of trouble all the time. But think about this. Maybe not all the time, but how many times when something difficult or hard or bad happens to you that you respond by saying or asking why? Why is this happening to me? Why? Did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? What did I do to deserve this? How many times have we responded this way? As if it were totally unexpected that we should ever struggle this way. Or worse, we start thinking, maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he's not really there. And if you've ever gone to this point, it's because you've got faulty expectations. Listen carefully. Any good that happens to you is because of his grace. Any good that happens to you in this world is because of sheer grace, completely undeserved. And you've got to understand that. But also understand this. Not every bad thing that happens to you is because somehow you deserved it. Or because somehow God doesn't like you anymore. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's the reality of living in a world that is temporary, that is fallen, that is broken, that is marred by sin, that oftentimes affects us sinfully. Malcolm Muggeridge, English journalist of the 1900s, he once said this, quote, the only ultimate tragedy is that man makes this earth his home, end quote. The ultimate tragedy, he says, is that man makes this earth 
his home. And you and I, we're reminded daily in a world full of trouble that this world is not perfect, that it can't be our final resting place. And it's to be expected. We just don't like it. So when it comes to being Christian, we need to get our expectations right. Because if you make the mistake of the Corinthian Christians, if you think or expect, whether consciously or subconsciously, that being Christian means that you, you escape trouble in this world, that's something that is difficult and hard that you see happening to other people, that somehow you think it can never happen to you, one of two things will happen. One possibility is that when things are good in your life, you will deceive yourself in thinking that you are spiritually doing well, that you are spiritually a cut above the rest, that you might boast in your own faithfulness, just like the Corinthian church. You might say to yourself, hey, look, I go to church, I worship, I serve, you know, I give, and that's why I'm blessed. That's why I've got the good life right now. Uh, and you will then spiritually look down on others who are struggling and going through something hard. That's what the Corinthians were doing. That's one option if you think like them, right? But the other option is this. The other possibility is this. If you think like the Corinthian church, when things are bad, when things are tough, you will conclude that you have failed to have your best life now. That it's all your fault. That somehow your faith is weak. That you've done something wrong and now you're being punished and that's why you're suffering that you're being not a great Christian, and that's why you're experiencing these things. Or worse, because you failed your expectations, because you failed what you expected, you might even blame God as if he promised something he never did. You blame God as if he never said, you will have trouble in this world. And you might conclude that he doesn't care, because not because of what God promised, but because of your expectations. Now that relationship is in jeopardy. And Paul here is saying this, no, 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 that's, that's not it at all. Learn to understand the times. Learn this present hour. Learn about where you're living right now. We don't live in a world to come yet. As good as the world can sometimes be, we don't have heaven yet. That's not yet. Not now, not completely, not fully. But one day, glory will follow where sin and death has gone. Where tears will, will be wiped away one day. Where regret will we'll, we'll never again trouble us. We're, we're suffering and, and even death will never again intrude. It will come one day. We have that promise now in the power of the Spirit, but not yet fully. Okay? So how do we live then? How do we live with the right expectations? To follow Jesus, it, it does mean joy. Joy right now. Joy already. Uh, because of the spiritual blessings we have by faith, not by sight. But what that means for us today is this, that that joy in this world, oftentimes it will be joy through tears. It will be joy through pain and toil and hardship. It will mean that, that we're on our way to perfect joy, but it takes progress and it's slow and it's hard and it's imperfect progress. And we progress and we grow in holiness until Jesus one day calls us to perfection. How do we then right now live with the right expectations? I want you to remember this. Okay, this is so practical. Think this to yourself. Remember this phrase, already but not yet. This is something that they teach you in seminary, and it's something that Paul teaches in his letters. Remember this phrase, already, but not yet. Already, you've been blessed with the grace of Christ. 
but not yet have you experienced those blessings to the fullest. Remember this phrase. Here's how you do this. When good days come in your life, when you recognize goodness and blessings and joy in your life, right? Already not yet. Focus on the not yet. Even though things are good, not yet have you arrived. Not yet are you free from what entangles in this world. Even though things might be good in your life, not yet are you free from sin and its effects in our lives and in our country. Not yet are you free from what breaks relationships in our world, in our homes. Even though things might be good and you're having a good day, not yet are you there. We need to move forward. We need to progress. You understand what he's saying? You know, one of my uh, favorite movies growing up was Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. I know some of you guys know that, know what that's about, right? Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon. In the beginning of the movie, there's this scene where Bruce Lee is teaching one of his students and he's pointing at the moon uh, to the student and he says this, it's like a finger pointing away to the moon. Do not concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory, end quote. And this is what we're saying. Even when things are good, remember the not yet. Don't stop caring. Don't stop doing good. Don't stop doing what's just and right in your life, in your home, in your workplace, in your towns, in your country. Just because things are going well for you right now, never be satisfied with the status quo, even when the status quo seems to be in your favor. Or you will miss all that heavenly glory. Not yet. In your good times, remember the not yet. But on the other hand, here's the other thing. When the other days come, those hard, difficult, and even painful days that come, and you find it hard to, to find encouragement, remember the already. Remember the already. Yes, not yet are we there. There's still trouble, difficulty, hardship, but already, already you've received the unchanging love of God. Already, right now, you've received the eternal promises of Jesus Christ. Already, right now, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees your eternal goodness and guarantees God working in your heart right now already. Even when life is hard, even when the days are rough, that means this. Already, you've got these things. Don't stop hoping. Okay? Don't stop trusting. Don't stop believing that God will either remove what's in your way or will get you through it. Don't stop loving. Don't stop forgiving. Don't stop persevering. Trust in his strength now already for the promises he makes, not just for you now, but for your good and for your future already, but not yet. I pray that we trust the Lord to do these things wherever you are in your life right now, however you're evaluating things as a Christian, that we don't make the mistake of the, Christian, uh, of the Christians in Corinth, but that you trust that although God is good right now, you still wait for the best, and therefore you move forward. Let's pray.